Welcome to the latest edition of the Shukri Rights Podcast with your host, Shukri Rights. I am beyond thrilled and excited today to have the one and only Damon Amendolora from CBS um, Sports Radio, formerly of 98.5 The Sports Up, joining the podcast today. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. Thanks so much for joining, or thanks so much for having me join the show and invite me on. This is cool. Yeah, this is absolutely really cool. And um, and we were talking about this before we started recording, but I want to get into it a bit more in detail. First time I, I heard you was summer 2019. Bruins had just lost a Stanley Cup, and I'm still still uh, rather pretty irritated about that here in Boston. <laughs> and the 98 of the Sports Hub, they did a 10-year anniversary special, and you were one of the guests that came on during that celebration. And I was I didn't know that you uh, were once upon a time a sports radio host in Boston. Like, let's re- let's revisit those Boston years, as a matter of fact, to start the podcast, shall we? Yeah, it was a really amazing opportunity for me. I was working in Miami at the time, and as a native New Yorker, I really wanted to get back to the Northeast where I knew sports really, really mattered. I had worked around the country a couple of times in Florida. My first job was in Fort Myers, Florida. Then I went to Kansas City. Then I went down to Miami. And in Miami, you know, sports is such an afterthought. Unless the teams are really good, they're really not all that much to talk about. So when LeBron got there, the Heat were a huge thing, but I wasn't there then. The Dolphins were kind of mediocre team when I was down there. The Marlins never get traction. The Panthers never get traction. The U wasn't that good. So it was kind of a downtime in Miami sports. And I just was like, I got to get back to the Northeast, Philly, Boston, New York, where sports really matters. And I had done some fill-in work for CBS in the New York market at WFAN yep. over my years. And they called me and they asked me, hey, we're flipping a bunch of sports radio stations in the summer of 2009 from news or rock stations to all sports. Would you be interested? I said, absolutely. Let me know. Boston was one of the options. And I did admit, I said, hey, guys, you know, as a New Yorker, I don't know if I'm going to be able to walk in there and, <laughs> and not get called out on my first day by the listeners. If you guys have faith in me, I want to do it. But you know, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, that I have some leash here. And they had the belief in me that I could do it. So I did the night show to help launch 98.5 The Sports Hub in August of 09. And I was there up until January of 2013. So about three and a half years anchoring the night show. And it was one of the biggest breaks of my career because 98.5 The Sports Hub, as you know, and probably many of your listeners know, yeah. is just a behemoth. It's a machine. It gets so much national notoriety. The ratings are so huge. At that time, we had the Patriots and the Bruins rights. Yep. So when the Bruins were on, I would come on pregame and then postgame. I helped you know, anchor the coverage every night of their Stanley Cup run in 2011. So when people were listening to the Bruins win a Stanley Cup, they were listening to me after those games and to do it with Dave Gosher and Bob Beers. And then that night that they won the Stanley Cup, I said, we got to be on all night long, 24 hours up until Touch and Rich came on the next day. You know, that really helped, I think, connect me to the city and the listeners to my show. And, um, and it helped really launch me because when they launched, CBS as an entity launched the national network in 2013, they called me and they said, hey, would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. And I think a lot of that had to do with the success that we had as a radio station at 98.5, the sports hub. So those, those years mean a lot to me. They 
the management there allowed me to try a lot of new things. I nicknamed my show The Mothership because with <laughs> homage to Parliament Funkadelic, who I just think is the greatest funk band of all time. And they invited everybody on stage as, a, as an intergalactic party. Everybody just kind of party inside their spaceship. I said, that's such a cool concept. I yeah. started that in Boston. I started the whole, uh, you know, connect to the mothership up there. And again, the, the listeners kind of allowed it and fed into it and enjoyed it. And um, those years were, were really amazing years. And I think without, without the success of those years, I don't know if I get the opportunity at, um, at CBS Sports Radio, which I've now been for eight years. Which is, which is really incredible. And as a testament to your, your success and your hard work that you've put into it. And I mean, we all have beginnings. Like for me, my, my beginning of my radio career doesn't happen without the mentorship that I've been fortunate to have for almost two years now with Bob Sosi, the radio play-by-play voice of the New England Patriots, and I need to have the sports up. And that's being completely truthful. Um, I'll, I'll get back to that story a little later on in the episode, but you talked about the Boston Bruins, and you were there from, um, from 09, August of 09 to January 2013, and you talked about the Bruins' run in 2011. I'm a diehard Bruins fan. I love hockey in itself so much so that I'm actually subscribed to the NHL TV because I got to know what the hell's going on across like the NHL, like what's going on with the Canadians, what's going on with the Leafs, what's going on with the Blackhawks. Like that's just me. But one of the things that I've told people, and, and I say this in all seriousness, the one regret that I do have, but everything in life happens for a reason, is that I wish I was in Boston, living in Boston during that cup run in 2011. Take me through what that time like was like in this city doing radio, especially for the hardcore Bruin fan during that magical um, Stanley Cup championship run in, in the spring of 2011. It's one of the coolest things that I've ever been able to witness. And it started in 2009 when I got there. When I got there in 09, the only sports radio station of, every, of, of any consequence in town was WEEI. Yeah. And for years, what I gathered when I walked into town was EEI really wouldn't let you talk Bruins. They didn't want to talk Bruins. Their hosts weren't comfortable talking Bruins. And if you called up to talk Bruins, they would kind of shun you and kind of shame you. Hey, we don't talk hockey around here. So a really, really smart strategic move done by 98.5 The Sports Hub was take the Bruins rights, which were within the family of CBS up there, put them on our sports radio station build programming around it nightly and encourage our listeners to talk hockey. Hey, we're your hockey station. Now, if you know anything about the Bruins, yeah, they might be a number four in town, but the passion of Bruins fans and the knowledge of Bruins fans is second to none. They're absolutely. So when I got into town, I got to admit, I wasn't the biggest hockey guy, but I had appreciated the sport and understood it from a certain distance. But I was like, oh, I got to know hockey. And I thrust myself into it because I was also helping do pre and post game for the Bruins on weeknights when I was when I was doing my show. And the fact that Felger and Maz and Toucher and Rich and everybody on the station bought in, hey, you can talk hockey here, open up doors to listeners that were shunned by the other radio station as a home for them. Oh, I can go to the sports hub and talk Bruins. Oh, they'll talk Bruins. Oh, they're talking to Chara. They're talking to Bergeron. You know, they're, they get it. And that I think gave us our first toehold in the city. And Bruins fans, I really believe are the very grassroots 
of the success of, of the sports hub. Because mm -hmm. once we started getting the toehold of those people, then our ratings started to creep up, climb up, and the Bruins started to go on a bit of a run as an organization. Yeah. They had gone so long without winning a Stanley Cup since the Bobby Orr days of the 1970s, early 70s, mm -hmm. that the thirst was there. The passion was there. The desperation was there. And the Bruins started building a better and better team. When we got there in 2009, so that's the playoffs of 2010, yeah. they have the epic collapse against the Flyers. Don't the ungodly <laughs> epic collapse where they're up 3 nothing, and then they oh lose four straight. Yeah, And it is gut-wrenching. And I'm on the air for these games and I'm watching history happen and we have to break it down. And the autopsy is like the Bruins gagged again. They gagged again against the Flyers up 3 nothing. So then you fast forward to June 2011 and the Bruins feel like we're close. We got to go in. We got to make the deadline trades. We got to go all in. And sure enough, Tim Thomas and that, that you know, group of guys goes on this Cinderella run. And the playoffs are so dramatic and every round's more dramatic than the next. And then they get to the Stanley Cup finals against the Vancouver Canucks oh, yeah. and they, it goes seven games. And the whole thing is so unbelievably dramatic. They, of course, end up winning the Stanley Cup. And we as a radio station were we were kind of along for the ride, but we were also driving the train as well because we started just building all of this content around the Bruins and Bruins fans they connected with us. We were their radio station. And then when the Bruins won the Stanley Cup, we were the radio station. We were, you know, the, the home and town of the champions. And I remember being down there um, right around the garden and watching the parade come by and helping do coverage of that parade. And I said, this is one of the greatest days that I'll ever have in, in the industry of covering the Stanley Cup parade, because I felt like I was almost a part of it. I mean, you had listeners, fans, recognizing me on the street and they were so happy about the cup and it was almost like I was part of that run with them yeah. they had listened to me on that overnight show after they won the Stanley Cup we had jam phone lines from the moment we logged on the air to the moment we signed off and people crying and they never thought they'd see it so to be part of that was really extraordinary it was a moment in time and I'll I'll always consider that one of the greatest moments that I'll ever have. And I think it's still the greatest uh, show that I've ever had and been a part of was the night the Bruins won the Stanley Cup. It was epic. And when I think about and I and I've asked countless people who were in Boston or in the industry or even just around New England during that time about just how magical that run was. That, you know, one of the things that is a common theme that I picked up was this was a team that they, they didn't just suddenly get good overnight. They were building up. Like you talk about 09 when the sports up started at that. I think that 08, 09 season was that season in which that the Bruins begun to really emerge as one of the elite teams in the NHL. Like you still you still had guys like Phil Kessel before he went to Toronto. You still had guys like Andrew Farron, Sean Thornton, who would end up becoming important pieces of that 2011 team. And, and what I gathered was you mentioned that the Bruins were, they're looked at as like the number four team in town, but the passion and the knowledge of the fan base, I feel like they should be either number one or number two. The Patriots, now I may get flack for saying this, but I'm going to say this because I think it's a hot take. The Patriots, 
they, they are a byproduct of the last 20 years. If we're talking historically between the four teams in town, the Bruins, I think it's on top, number one. This goes back decades and going back to the Bobby Orr era. Like, and I'm talking to like leather lung Bruin fans that say, oh man, you, you missed the 70s Bruins. They, they were the, the, the teams that won the, that won the cup and they got to other cup finals and they and unfortunately came up short against Montreal. But that was the team that really built that culture. And, and I really get the sense and the feeling that Boston at its core is a hockey city. Would you agree or disagree with that assessment? That's a great, it's a great observation. I think, I think Boston's a hockey town. Now, it, it has the space to be an everything town. I mean, yeah. the Red Sox, obviously, in the 90s and 2000s, the Red Sox, and I mean, you can probably go back to the, to the 70s and 80s too, unbelievable passion and that same urgency. We have to win a championship. And of course, the Celtics have always been wonderful. And as you said, the last 20 years, the Patriots have taken the forefront. But what the Bruins had in 2011 was the historic urgency to win that the other teams no longer had. The Patriots had won those Super Bowls. The Red Sox had won those World Series. By the time I got there, they'd already had two in 04 and 07. The Celtics had won two years earlier in 2008. So, and the Celtics had all of those championships. There wasn't the same, my God, we need to win. And the Bruins represented that. And because of that, the Bruins were the last vestige of Boston as not title town, but instead the kind of working class lunch pail. We got to put our, you know, hearts on the line again. Will they, will they break our hearts again? Will they do it? And, you know, we haven't been able to say that about a Boston sports team in a long time. <laughs> so that's why I thought it was really authentic. And it was it was wonderful to be a part of because, you know, the Red Sox championships are fine recently, but there's nothing like 2004. Mm. The Patriots championships are fine. There's nothing like 2001. So the Bruins in 2011 were that championship for that fan base and for the city and there's just nothing more authentic than hockey fans. They are just the most real people ever because they don't, you know, their teams aren't on Sports Center all the time. Their teams don't get talked about in first take. Their teams, you know, hockey coverage, you like, you have to really be a hockey fan and go seek out, as you said, the NHL package because you don't yes. have, you know, these huge games put on national TV all the time. So that's why I really resonated with Bruins fans. And that's why I kind of felt part of a family. And Hockey's also a small, it's a small culture, you know, it's like everybody at the TD garden during those runs, they, they knew the, the, the people in the section next to them, you know, they, yep, that's they knew true. The people <laughs> that were at the, the fours watching the game or whatever. And I, I just really, if I could take a time machine and go back, I would just to experience that lead up to that championship. It was such a, uh, an explosion of, of energy and of passion that it was really, really special. And it's the last time we'll get that in Boston sports until another team has a 40 year drought, which would probably be like 30 years from now. (laughs) Which is in, in this city, it's completely unfathomable. And you talk about a change of the guard in Boston sports right now, you look at the Bruins, as we, as we mentioned, I mean, they just recently let Chara walk in free agency and let and he eventually signed with the Washington Capitals. 
Um, the Celtics, they are, they've been kind of building up for a while, but they have not been able to overcome that hump in the Eastern Conference Finals for what for a myriad of reasons. And then you have to you've had the Red Sox, who I think is the one team that has been the most maddening to watch because they've been jackling high. They'll have the one year they win it all, or the, and then the next year they're in last place. They go through a two-year lull or a five-year lull, win it again, and then it's like downhill. And you're kind of seeing that right now with the Red Sox currently. And in the Patriots, you let the greatest of all time walk, or in some people's eyes, they say they pushed them out the door, and now they're going into season two looking for who is their next quarterback going to be. So it's a little bit of an interesting dynamic where in the city, as you, and as you know, they're so used to winning. They're so used to having that constant um, constant team or teams like compete for a championship. So in, in, in your view, what do you think is the biggest single common denominator in terms of all of these teams competing for championships year in and year out? Can't last forever. That's the ultimate truth in sports. It cannot last forever because guys age out, GMs change, and you just can't, you can't do it forever. And the Patriots mm. defied logic. They really defied logic. And what happened in Boston is historic. You'll, you're just never going to get ever again four teams in the same city that are all great, not good, great at the yeah. same time. And you could say that between, let's say, 2009 and 2015 or so. Yeah. All four teams were competing for a championship every single yes. year, every right. single year. And you could still say that the Red Sox even more recently have competed for championships and the Bruins have as well, but it's been a little bit more spotty for them, you know, in that run. But it'll just never happen again because the, the stars have to align for one team to be able to do it, let alone all four in the same city to be able to do it. And I, I do think going back to our Bruins conversation, the fact that the, the Patriots were already on about an eight-year run of dominance, nine-year run, the, the Red Sox had won two World Series and the Celtics had gone all in on the KG trade. I think that did spur the Bruins to not be the ugly stepsister anymore. It did spur the Bruins to kind of wake up you know, the, the Jacobs family to say, we need to go all in as well, or at least they could be convinced that they had to be all in. And so then the front office started making those aggressive moves that yeah. historically speaking, the Bruins really didn't want to do because they were very financially conservative and cheap. Let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> so I just don't think it, that, that thing that happened was a moment in time. And I don't think it can happen again. And this is just the odds. The odds are one or two or three of the teams falls on hard times because you know you can't find a quarterback oh, that happens to half the league every single year yeah. um you know a couple of your free agents walk that happens to a lot of baseball teams every single year there's one or two teams better than you in your conference that happens in the basketball world every single year like the celtics have hit with lebron and you know other teams it those things just happen so i think that's ultimately the truth it's it's kind of like, well, duh, DA, but it really is the truth. You just you just can't keep it going forever. And that's why I think those 20 years for, for Boston, I, I honestly, they'll, they'll never happen again. And I don't think they'll ever happen for another city again. And for Boston fans that only knew that, you're in for a rude awakening. Because <laughs> if... If all you know is championships on all four sports because mm -hmm. you're like 25 years old, 
let me let me walk you down memory lane with a Bob Ryan, a Dan Shaughnessy, uh, the guys that have been there forever about what the 80s looked like or what yeah. the 70s looked like or what the 90s looked like. You know, there's been some dark times in Boston sure. sports. Like the 90s were a dark, dark time where nobody won anything. That could happen again. It's, you're not supposed to just have duck boat parades like every six months. That's not supposed <laughs> And it almost happened in 2019, if not for the Boston Bruins breaking my freaking heart in game seven of the finals against yeah. the St. Louis Blues. But in in more national um, national headlines, one of the things that I've talked about on my nationally syndicated uh, radio show, which I do for Pacifica Radio Network, I've talked about this Super Bowl, Super Bowl 55 is coming up, as potentially going down as one of the greatest Super Bowls of all time, if not the greatest Super Bowl of all time in terms of headlines. On one hand, you have a potential burgeoning dynasty in Kansas City, Mahomes. No one, none of us has ever seen a quarterback like Mahomes. He has no comparable at all. You have Tom Brady. He leaves New England. All he does is go to another Super Bowl. Ho-hum, no big deal. But now when you bring these two behemoths of QBs and the headlines that come along with it, you say to yourself, I don't think we'll ever see a, a Super Bowl with this much at stake. So, Dia, I'll ask you, when you look at Super Bowl 55 and you look at the Buccaneers and the Chiefs, who do you have as a team that has the most to lose and what will be the determining factor as to what will decide this game? Well, the team with the most to lose is interesting because – the Chiefs right now are on the doorstep of history, being able to win back-to-back -back Super Bowls. When you look at the history of teams that have been able to do that, they are the greatest of all time. Yeah, You've got the Patriots in 03 and 04. You've got Elway's Broncos in 97, 98. Mm -hmm. The Dynasty Cowboys of the 90s, the Dynasty Niners of the 80s, the Dynasty Steelers of the 70s, and then the Packers of the 60s. Those are the only teams that ever do it besides the 72 Dolphins and 73 Dolphins, again, two of the greatest teams ever. So yeah. if you do this, you are in rarefied air. You're, you're automatically one of the seven best teams ever in the Super Bowl era. For sure. So that's what's at stake for, for the Chiefs because you don't know the Chiefs could go to more Super Bowls but never have a back-to-back -back opportunity. Let's face it, the Patriots have been unbelievably good for 20 years they went back to back once and it was 16 years ago. So it's hard, really hard to do. So that's at stake. What's also at stake for Patrick Mahomes is if he wins this game, I don't think you can ever, ever, ever criticize him. I really don't think there's anything left for him to do the rest of his career to where you would say, well, it's not quite good enough because then he would have one back to back. He would have won two Super Bowls in his first three years as a starter. He would have outdueled Tom Brady in a Super Bowl, beaten the greatest of all time. And he would have found a way to once again win a huge game. He's come back from 24 points down to the playoffs. He's come back from down 10 in the Super Bowl. You know, what he's done every step of the way is just found a way to win. And so he could win this. And then what are you going to say for the next 12 years? That, well, he can't get it done, or I don't expect him to get it done, or he's mm -hmm. not good enough. Like, you just could never say that again. What would it take for you to believe that he couldn't get it done? So that's what's at stake from a legacy standpoint for, for Mahomes. It's interesting, though, when you say who has more to lose, because the Buccaneers might really not get back here. I mean, it, it, it took kind of a confluence of events for them to get this far. Yeah. 
They needed three interceptions of Drew Brees in the NFC Divisional round. They needed Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers to, you know, really offensively have a pretty rough day around the edges to make it past the NFC Championship game. Yeah. They got a break in the NFC Divisional round or the Wild Card round against a, a sub 500 NFC East team. Mm-hmm. And you know, they've they've been a bit of a, a mistress of fortune here because. They also got a bye week in week 12, the latest anybody had a bye week, which helped reset their clock and reset their season. If that bye week happens week six, are they in the Super Bowl? Also, as great as Brady is at 43, at some point you can't just expect him to keep doing it. So at 44, even if he's this good, but they don't have the same breaks or he's a little bit worse, can you get back? So this could be the window right here for the Bucs. So I think we expect the Chiefs to be there year after year after year, they'll have more shots at it than just this. But history awaits them with this. For the Bucks, they might not get another shot at this. And so that's why it feels like there's almost more to, to lose there because it might be their one crack at it. And you mentioned something interesting about the NFC title game. While I give Brady played a great first half, he was not great in the second half. Three and I, 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 I honestly think so, yeah. Those interceptions that he threw threw in the second half, I literally said to myself, hmm, if there was ever a strong take that I ever delivered, it was the fact that Aaron Rodgers delivered the death blow to his own legacy in this regard as he is the great underachiever in NFL history. And my reason was this. His record in NFC title games, I can't overlook. You got the one big break in 2010. And you you had a pretty a pretty pretty darn good defense in 2010, Clay Matthews, B.J. Raji, and as well as a healthy um, a healthy Charles Woodson, future Hall of Famer. And you look at the rest of the time of the years that came after 2014, I would call it a choke job in Seattle against the Legion of Boom. You're up by 16 in Seattle, going going into the waning moments of the game. You got to close it out. 2016. You got completely destroyed in Atlanta. <laughs> I mean, against the Falcons, and you 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 go back to um, and you you go back to I, I would dare even say like last year, 2019. And I look at this Packers team and I say to myself, what else do you have to do in order to keep coming back to these opportunities? And you blow it. You faced a great Niner team in last year's NFC title game in, in San Francisco. I'll give you that. But even then, Aaron Rodgers didn't look good in that game either. But in a game in which that you had opportunities after opportunities to capitalize on chances in the fourth quarter, my hot take that Monday morning after the game was Aaron Rodgers continues to show me exactly who and what he is in critical moments in games while Tom Brady continues to show me why he's considered the greatest of all time. Is that a fair assessment to make? Yeah, it is. It is because basically the NFC championship game lost this year. If it's not the most devastating loss of Aaron Rodgers' career, it's right there with that collapse against Seattle. Now the collapse against Seattle, you might be able to give him a pass because he helped build a lead and then his defense and special teams gagged it away. I mean, all they have to do is recover an onside kick and Aaron yep. Rodgers in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. But in this case, as you said, there's three interceptions your defense gives you of Tom Brady in a row, and you complete six points out of it. You make those six total points. At the end of the game, you've got to get into the end zone. You first and goal from the eight-yard line, and you don't get into the end zone. You settle for a field goal. 
Mm. To your point, there's no way you can convince me that Tom Brady gets three interceptions of the opposing quarterback and doesn't take advantage of them on those drives, nor late in the fourth quarter of a championship game has the, has the ball in the eight yard line and doesn't get into the end zone. I just refuse to believe it. I've seen Brady do it. I saw Brady do it. I saw Joe Montana do it. I saw John Elway do it. I know those guys can do it. And now I'm watching Patrick Mahomes do it. Rogers has not been that guy. And as brilliant as Rogers is, he has come up small in some big spots. There's no doubt. And this year, that team had it all. That, that This year, there was no excuse. And to have the NFC Championship game at home as well, there was no excuse. So I agree with you. That's as crushing a defeat as he'll ever suffer. And for all of his brilliance and his Hall of Fame resume, which he'll be there one day, Rogers being unable to close the door in the biggest spots is going to haunt him. And which is why, you know, something my brother said something interesting two days ago. And I think it's really is worth saying even now, you know, Aaron Rodgers is going to go down. Yes, as one of the best quarterbacks to ever play, but he's also going to be looked at in the same limelight as a Brett Favre. Guys who win one Super Bowl, but could have actually won more. And I say, you know what? You're, you're not wrong in that at all. Because after all, he got back to Swell in 97, but he went up against that, that Denver Bronco team that hadn't won the big one yet. And that was the big monkey on the back of John Elway, if you will. Can't win the big one. He finally does in his final two years in the NFL in 97 and 98. But in this case, you look at Aaron Rodgers and you say, yeah, but... Patrick Mahomes right now has the one Super Bowl in the once in, in his first Super Bowl appearance last season. He's back in another one. Would you say that him winning another one would now cement his legacy with nothing else to prove in terms of what else do I need to prove? I've won league MVP 2018. He he was basically the catalyst of one of the most un, unforgettable, absolutely remarkable Super Bowl runs probably ever of all time in the 2019 Kansas City Chiefs. And when you think about the comebacks, the collapse against that, that Houston had in that division round against Kansas City, they were up 28 nothing, 28 to three. Kansas City comes back and completely annihilates them. And then the AFC title game against Tennessee, they're up 17 to seven. And Kansas City comes back. Titans were up, were up 10, 17 to seven. They came back. Super Bowl. 49ers, they're up by 10, and they can't close out in the fourth quarter for a myriad of reasons. Patrick Mahomes has done it all, and if he wins this Super Bowl, would you say that he has proved everything that he possibly can prove as a starting quarterback in this league and that his legacy is cemented? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say that anything could be cemented at 25 years old, but going back to something that I mentioned earlier in the conversation – I don't really know what you would ever say to discredit or to criticize or to be negative about Patrick Mahomes ever again. You just could never take away the fact that he did something that only a handful of teams ever did, a handful of quarterbacks. All the quarterbacks that ever won back-to-back championships are in the Hall of Fame. That includes Bob Greasy, who in one of those games attempted seven passes. Wow. So if you do this, you end up in the Hall of Fame. That's it. So you'd know that for the next 10 years, you're watching a future Hall of Famer. It's set in stone. So yeah, I do think that this is something that cements a legacy. And I think what it would also do, as I had mentioned, was the exact opposite of Aaron Rodgers. Rodgers, Breeze, 
far for many years. We watched greatness, but we always assumed, eh, they're going to come up a little bit short. Mm-hmm. With Brady, we always assumed he's going to find a way to get it done. Yeah. And that will happen with Patrick Mahomes. If he wins this game, you will always assume for the rest of his career, yeah, he's going to find a way to get it done because he did this many times this early in his career. There's an interesting question that just came up. And you talked about Breeze. And Breeze is, by all reports, he's going to retire after 20 years in the NFL this offseason. When you look at Drew Breeze's legacy, what do you think will be the final paragraph, if you will, of the book of Drew Brees of his Hall of Fame career? Well, it's interesting. I think he's always going to be overshadowed by his contemporaries. He was not the winner of Tom Brady. He was not the face of the league like Peyton Manning. He wasn't as dazzling as Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers. He didn't have those things. And he had the stats. He had a lot of stats and he had that brilliant 2009 championship run and a really memorable city and and their comeback from Katrina. And so it was a really emotional, memorable run, but he was always overshadowed by his contemporaries. And I'm wondering what happens in history's eyes, because he'll be a first ballot hall of famer, obviously, but in 20 years, Will we go, yeah, you know what? That Drew Brees, man, I loved watching him play. He was great. He's one of the all-time greats. Or will we say, yeah, he was really good, but he wasn't Brady. He wasn't Peyton. Yeah. He wasn't Mahomes. He wasn't Rodgers. Mm-hmm. You know, when I hear people talk about all the quarterbacks, there's such an, a respect that goes on those four guys that I just mentioned. Yeah. Brady and Peyton and, and Rodgers and Mahomes. And you don't really hear that about – about Breeze. And Mm. one of the things that I think, I think is a precursor to how we will look at Drew Breeze historically was that he didn't make NFL 100. He was not on the list of the greatest quarterbacks of the 100 years of the NFL. Brady and Peyton Manning were, and it just kind of said, man, you've got a guy that had this career will retire with most, if not all of the passing records. And He couldn't even make an all decade team and he couldn't make the all NFL 100 team. You know, maybe he was a victim of timing, but people might also say that because the offensive rules were the way that they are, that that really helped him playing in a dome, playing in these rules. So I think he's respected. I don't think he's cherished. I don't think people will ever consider him the legend of legends that the other guys that I mentioned are. And you talk about legacies. Legacies are such as such a touchy topic in sports. I mean, I could go on for hours talking about NBA legacies. We all saw the Jordan documentary uh, last spring um, in which that we really got to cherish and appreciate Michael Jordan's legacy and what it is as him being the greatest of all time. Now, there are people that are constantly in this bickering of, is it MJ or is it LeBron? Who would you take as greatest of all time? So I'll pose you this question. You witnessed both both men play. MJ, I watched during my childhood years, especially when he was in Chicago in, in the mid-late 90s. And when I saw that documentary, I said to myself, 
I don't see how I don't see how there could possibly be a, a, a comparison between MJ and LeBron. Is it fair to hold the six NBA Finals losses against LeBron when you assess his his legacy, or do you say LeBron deserves to be in a conversation with MJ? I do think LeBron deserves to be in that conversation. I would not put him greater than Michael Jordan. I do believe it's a real legitimate conversation, though. You know, there's going to be a lot of Patriots fans probably that listen to your podcast here. And I remember their argument before Tom Brady had won his fifth Super Bowl. And that was, well, don't you have to credit Tom Brady for getting to more Super Bowls than Joe Montana, even if he lost them? It's mm. better that Joe Montana lost before the Super Bowl than it is in the Super Bowl because people would hold up the Joe Montana 4-0 and record versus Brady, who had a couple of losses in the Super Bowl before he got number five. It's the same argument. You're going to somehow mark down LeBron for getting farther than MJ did more times. And when you look at the reason that LeBron had those finals losses, most of them are not on LeBron. Mm. In 2007, he drags a disaster of a Cavs team. Yeah. Finals. Elgalskis. <laughs> Yeah, second best player is Adrunas Ogalskis or Booby Gibson. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, that's not an NBA Finals team. In 2013, or I guess whatever the 14. loss was, it was the 14. Spurs, the 14. Mm -hmm. The Spurs lost in 14. He's the only guy on the Heat that shows up at the NBA Finals. The rest of the Heat team does not, and the Spurs are an all-in team that everybody executes. His multiple losses to the Golden State Warriors. He's averaging basically a triple-double, a 30-point triple-double in every one of those finals. Mm -hmm. He loses his first finals in 2015 to the, the Warriors when his second-best player is probably Matthew Dellavedova because both Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving are injured. His loss, his losses to Kevin Durant against the Warriors, I mean, the Warriors are arguably the most talented team that ever walked in the NBA arena. And again, the only guy that's shown up to make those a series is LeBron. Mm. You could definitely ding him on the loss of the Mavericks. He did not show oh, up. Oh, yeah, 2011. Whew. But mm. it's, I mean, what, what are you going to do with, he has five NBA finals losses that are really not his fault. So I don't think you can grade him down for that. That's, that's the thing. But if you want to go back to the Michael Jordan documentary, what it showed was Michael's mastery of the sport for a really long, consistent time where there was just nobody that could achieve that level. And I think that mastery, that perfection, that cutthroat ability, that win at all costs, I do still think that makes Michael the GOAT, the greatest. But I do think the conversation has to be had about LeBron in that stratosphere because you can't mark down a guy that dragged all of those teams to the NBA Finals. And by the way, is still doing it. I mean, you know... <laughs> Three NBA Finals or so, yeah. that, that's got to count for something, even if you lose the NBA Finals, when you are the best player usually on the floor in the NBA Finals, even if you lose. An interesting question came up, and I and I want this question to, to also spark conversation and debate. Because, as you know, for years, prior to 1991, what was MJ's number one nemesis? The Detroit Pistons. Jordan rules. Don't don't let him jump high. And for years before he finally won his first one, couldn't beat the Detroit Pistons. Couldn't get to the finals. And all Jordan could ever be looked at as, oh, he's just a great scorer, great player, but his teams don't win. 
LeBron, on the other hand, is looked at, yo, he gets to the finals, but he's lost to the finals six out of 10 times. Why do you think that the comparison between the two in terms of criticism isn't the same? And do you think there, there is some sort of, a, of an agenda in, in the national media when you look at the comparison of struggles between MJ and LeBron when assessing that argument between of who, which one is the greatest of all time? Yeah, I do think there's an agenda and I think it's twofold. I think number one, a lot of the media that argues for Michael Jordan grew up with Michael Jordan. And so now they are the adults with the microphones and the keyboards and they're going to make the case for their childhood hero. I mean, how many, how many people in the media today are in their forties or fifties and they grew up watching Michael be dominant and now they're here to defend his legacy. I mean, it just, it's like constant. (laughs) Number two, Michael's story fits a perfect narrative. As you just mentioned, he is the best player in a bad team, that he's the best player in a kind of good team, that he's the best player in a really good team that can't get over the hump, bangs its head, bangs its head against the wall, can't get over the hump, can't beat the Pistons, eventually does beat the Pistons, dispatches the Pistons, then goes to the NBA Finals and goes on the run and doesn't lose, and then retires before it erodes, ages, and goes wrong. This narrative, if you just envision an arc, it is the arc. It just goes up and up and up and up and up. Whereas LeBron does not have a very neat arc like that. Mm. Number one, there wasn't years of pain before he finally broke through. He broke through pretty early in that 07 NBA Finals. He then is expected to get there every single year and has a couple of bad playoff losses, a couple of the Celtics, frustrating losses. Then people start saying, oh, maybe he can't do it on a big stage. He then leaves the Cavaliers. Michael never left. And so now it's, oh, you had to chase a championship. And then he leaves again, goes back to the Cavaliers. But when he goes back, he loses in the NBA finals three out of those four seasons. Mm. Then he leaves again to go to the Lakers. And it doesn't fit this kind of perfect Jordan narrative that so many people like to, to just kind of keep in their mind's eye. And so I, I think that hurts LeBron in this argument because let's just put it this way. Mm-hmm. If LeBron had all done this just on the Cavaliers, okay, mm-hmm. this is completely in the Cavaliers, and his six NBA Finals losses all come at the beginning, and he's trying and trying and trying and can't get through, and then all of the championships come on the back end and they are four in a row or four out of five years, or he wins two, retires for a year, comes back and wins two. It fits the narrative so much better that Michael fits. And I think that that would probably help him in that argument in people's minds. From national sports talk to personal story. One of the things that I really come to admire, especially uh, even within the journey of life is that everybody has a beginning, how it all began. Tell me about when you first fell in love with radio. How did you first fall in love with radio? And did you have any particular idols that you looked for that you looked uh, up to growing up? Well, I really, really always loved the idea of talking about sports. I was comfortable in front of the school class delivering a book report. I enjoyed being the center of attention. I always had that kind of showmanship personality. I liked being the, you know, the, the center of attention at family parties or at school in the playground or whatever. So I was naturally a ham and I loved, loved sports. Mm. 
So talking about sports was something that I just felt like, boy, this is in my bones that I would love to do. And when I was in high school, I reached out to my cable access channel TV and I said, could I do some local work for you? And they allowed me to do some broadcasting for high school sports. And I would take a camera around and broadcast my local high school soccer game or basketball game or football game. And I started getting the bug like, oh, okay, this is how this is done. And I started really kind of figuring out, okay, what's, what's the best way to do this? What do people that are in the, the industry do? You know, I started to really th think about it as a job, not just as a hobby. So when I went to college, I attended a college that I thought had a really good journalism school in Syracuse that would give me opportunities to get reps on the air. And I went to a student radio station, WAER there, and I just wanted to be on the air behind the microphone perfecting the craft. And you have a lot of people there, upperclassmen, that are constantly critiquing you and polishing you. And I knew that that's what I needed. And so when I was on the radio, I loved the idea of this theater of the mind. I loved yeah. the idea that radio was a very intimate relationship, that you could be as creative as possible in painting this picture. And when I got out of school, I had a television demo reel that I sent out a million places. And I had a radio demo reel that I sent out a million places. But my heart, my passion was really in radio for those reasons that I just mentioned. And I couldn't get a job for a long time. I graduated in May of 2001. And I couldn't get a job until almost the following May. It was about March when I finally got my first gig. And it was really hard. For those wow. 10 months, I graduated from a really good journalism school, perhaps the best in the country. At the top of my class, I had accomplished everything I could in college. And my, my friends were getting jobs and I couldn't. And it was killing me because, you know, I felt about this big. And I felt like, man, maybe this life is not supposed to break this way. I put all my heart into this. And I could not land this first job. And a guy that I, I had done part-time work for in Rochester, New York, I was driving an hour and 15 minutes from Syracuse multiple times a week as a junior and a senior to just get on the air in Rochester, I had moved to Fort Myers, Florida. And in March of 2002, and I'm just banging my head against the wall, says, hey, we might have something down here, but it's probably only about 10 hours a week. Are you cool with that? And I said, it doesn't matter if it's 10 hours a week or one hour a week, I'm in. I packed up all my clothes in my car, 1995 Chevy Lumina that my parents had given me. And I said, I'm, I'm, mom, dad, I'm going, I'm going for this. I might be back in three months. I might be you know, gone for good, I don't know, but I got to go try this. And I figured I'd work in the mall for the other 30 hours a week or just try to you know, make ends meet at whatever, be a waiter or whatever. Yeah. And that job ended up providing me everything I needed to learn the industry. It was a four person radio station and I pretty quickly became full-time because they needed cheap labor. So <laughs> I ended up being a producer, an update anchor, a board op. Uh, I merged uh, commercial logs. I staffed the, you know, the weekends. I, I was everything. Again, they just needed cheap labor. And I made $18,000 a year. And I was like, this is the best job I'll ever have because I made a full-time living doing what I loved. And that was the spark. It taught me that, man, it doesn't matter. I didn't even know I wasn't making a lot of money. You know, you're 22 years old. You're like being poor. Doesn't, it doesn't register. You're just yeah. like, yeah, I'll eat ramen and, and, and pizza. And uh, you know, I just, I won't go out to the movies, but that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll drink on dollar beer night. It's like, it's just like <laughs> So, oh, the college life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I was I was very accustomed to college life after those four years to keep living college life after that. Yep. I didn't know I didn't have any money. You know, I just knew that I was doing what I loved. And um, it was it was the biggest lesson ever because I had scrounged and scrambled and and tried so hard to get a job and couldn't that when I finally got a job, there was no way I was giving it up. I was going to work 60 hours a week. I would wake up at 5 a.m., drive into the office. I would produce the first two shows of the day, morning and lunchtime. I'd go home and take a nap and come back to the radio station or go out to a remote to host a Monday night football game, to host a Tuesday night college football show, Mm. to host our nighttime coverage, go to bed, wake up, do it all over again. I would also work Saturdays and Sundays doing remote broadcasts as well, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It It was the air that I needed. So that was the beginning. And from there, I parlayed that into my job in Kansas City, then Miami, then Boston, then CBS Sports Radio. But without, um, you know, my, my former colleagues offering 10 hours a week to do pregame coverage of a minor league arena football team in Fort Myers, Florida, I don't know where I'd be. I want to go back to those months in which that those, those first 10, 11 months after you graduated from Syracuse and Syracuse, for those that don't know, is the behemoth of the ultimate broadcasting school you can go to for a four year college university. You mean you have alumni like Bob Costas, Mike Tirico, who went there, yourself included. I mean, I can go on and on as well as um, Noah Eagle, the son of Ian Eagle, who who is the radio voice play by play of the Los Angeles Clippers. They all went to, to Syracuse. And you mentioned about that time period between after you graduated and when you got that first job, about how difficult that time was for you. How did you how did you persevere through those times? And what was the number one thing that kept you going during those times? I've always been pretty hard headed that if I thought I could do something and I really wanted to do it, I would just do it. And there really was like not many people that could tell me you can't do it. I I just, it's a stubbornness, it's a hardheadedness, it's a unreasonable belief that I can figure it out. And that just goes for like home projects. My wife is oftentimes like, you you know, just give up. You can't, and I'm like, no, 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 we can do this. We can figure it out. We can, and when I was in high school, really, I mean, going back to junior high, it was something that I wanted to do. I, I was reading Sports Illustrated, considering the words that they used in articles. I was watching SportsCenter considering how they wrote their opens and teases. I mean, I was studying this for a long time that it just always felt like, hey, there's a spot for you in this industry. You just gotta, you just gotta keep working at this. And so I just had this belief that if I kept working, it would happen. I, I didn't have any, I didn't have a reason not to believe it would happen. And I guess that's where I come from a lot of things. You can't tell me it can't happen until you prove to me it can't happen. I believe in I believe in things happening to people. I believe in fortune and I believe in destiny and I believe in hard work. You know, and you consider where my parents grew up and my grand my grandparents. I mean, my, my grandma came here as an immigrant from Slovakia at the turn of the mm-hmm. century, and she was the cleaning lady for the Empire State Building for decades. Wow. Now for me, seeing that work ethic where she worked at nights and she slept during the day and she raised four kids as an immigrant in her second language, I had no excuse not to bust my ass every single day. And my parents also, I came from a working class household where 
you know, you, you didn't necessarily know if every check was going to clear. So mm. I had no excuse not to work hard. And so I just believed that if I kept working hard and I kept focused and I kept making the phone calls and I kept emailing everybody that it would happen. And it was very dispiriting when it didn't because I had just always believed that it would. This will break. It'll break. It'll break. It'll break. I believe it'll break. I believe in my bones it'll break. And when six months pass and eight months pass and 10 months pass and it doesn't break and it breaks for everybody else around you, mm. it's really spiritually devastating. I mean, it was, it was like one of those things where I did come to a bit of a come to Jesus moment. And the come to Jesus moment was I stopped applying to on-air jobs because I just figured, okay, behind the scenes. At the very least, I can get behind the scenes. Now, as you mentioned, it wasn't like I had just kind of figured this was my hobby and I tried to apply. Like I went to the best journalism school. Yeah. I had graduated at the top of my class uh, in that school. I had competitively competed against all these great broadcasters. Andrew Catalan, who's one of the voices of the NFL, is one of my best friends. He was my classmate. Carter Blackburn, college basketball, college football for CBS, one of my classmates. A year older than me was Corey Provis, who's the voice of the Minnesota Twins right now. Two years older than me was Adam Shine, who has a national platform as well. These were my classmates, and I couldn't—I felt like I could match up against them, and I couldn't get a job. I could not get any job. So I said, okay, I, there's a job online for the Sci-Fi Channel, the old cable channel. I remember Sci-Fi, yes. Sci-Fi yeah. Channel. And it was like, what, Mystery Science Theater 3000 and a couple yep. of like old 1960s science fiction <laughs> You know, what, one yeah. of those, uh, the aliens uh, built the pyramids type yeah. things. Oh, <laughs> they, had a, they had a job for secretary. Yeah. Secretary. Wow. And I said, fine. I just need to work, first of all. I felt like a bum not working. I just need to work. And it's a starting point. You know, yeah. then I'm in the building. Then I can meet producers. And it's not sports, but whatever. It's just, it's a broadcast. It's a, it's a job in media. For sure. And I got an email back that said, thanks, but we've decided to go in a different direction. And I was like, whoa, I can't get a job to be the secretary at the Sci-Fi Channel. And it was at that point when I honestly did this, I had this real come to Jesus moment. And I said, well, I need to be okay if this doesn't work out. This was my dream for, let's say, six years, two years high school, four years college, a year after college, this is my dream. And I have to be okay if it doesn't work out because I have now exhausted everything. Mm. I have applied for every job. I have talked to everybody I could in the industry. I've honed my craft. I have not said any job is beneath me. I applied to Cedar Rapids. I applied to the, a secretary position of the Sci-Fi Channel. I applied everywhere. There was nothing that was beneath me. And I said, you know what? I've got to let go and be okay. If this doesn't happen, I did what I could do. And it was very soon after that, that I got that call about the job in Fort Myers. So there was a lesson there that I needed to learn where it wasn't like, hold your breath and keep chipping every single day. There had to be a little bit of a, you have to let life happen. And that was a huge turning point for me because if I didn't learn that lesson, you know, I might not have the patience that I have today about letting life unfold. And uh, there's a plan. I really do believe that you have to put in your effort. You have to put in your work. You have to, when the door opens, you've got to walk through it, but you can't always control when the door opens. You just have to be ready when it does, but it will. You just have to trust the process. And, you know, like the Philadelphia 76ers, you got to trust the process. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I'm not sure. 
I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Time. I don't know if I could co- I compare that with the Philadelphia 76ers slogan trust the process because that process cost the head coach his job. So, I mean, I I mean like and, 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 and in a, in a spirit of being of being funny though, but I find that to be powerful because there is a big part of me that actually relates to that. And I want to share with you my story because in in case if you if you didn't realize yet it's this is really more of a conversation at this point this is not even an interview it's just just a conversation between someone who is well established working national radio and myself working as a syndicated national radio host myself but at the same time still chipping away towards towards something bigger and better and it's going to sound crazy but if I told you where I was just two years ago at this time to where I am now, I don't think I could have foreseen this unfolding. Now, two years ago, actually, I'm going to go a little bit before that. Three years ago at this time, I was, um, I was working as a assistant manager for IST management offices. I, I went to school, went to Long Island University in, in Brooklyn uh, for, for journalism. Um, and at this point, I moved to Boston in February 2017 to begin my career as a broadcaster. I knew absolutely next to nothing about, you know, you know, reaching out to people, making connections and just getting on air experience because the only experience I ever had was working as an intern for 98.7 ESPN in New York. That was it. So I, here I am. I moved to Boston and at this point, February 2018, I'm working as an assistant manager. I get fired in April of 2018. Now I go six months, six months, no job, no full-time job. I had a part-time job working at the garden as a member of the ball gang. Amazing job. Wouldn't trade out, wouldn't trade it for the world. And October comes around, October 18, right around the time when the Red when the Red Sox won the World Series. I get a job working at the Brigham, and I'm working as uh, a check-in clerk um at the at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in, in Boston. And now at this point, I'm just I'm just trying to make ends meet because I knew what I wanted to do, but I had been in in such a place where I said I needed to completely find a way to make ends meet and just grind and just just work. And I said, you know, something has to change. Something has to change. And I said, you know, I'm I'm 27 years old at this point. I know what I'm what I want to do. I'm not where I want to be. Why is that? That come to Jesus moment that you that you spoke of happened in April of 2019. I'll, ne- I'll never forget this. I was dating someone at the time, very, very sweet lady. And I had a very, a very honest conversation about, listen, like, I'm not happy in, uh, with my life. I need to figure out why am I not doing what I want to do? And she said something that just stood out. And she said, you need to do a better job of finding a way to reach out to reach out to someone who works in the industry, talk to people, 
because you know almost next to nobody and that works in the industry that you want to work in, there are multiple windows to a house. You don't have to necessarily wait for that door to open, but there are other ways to get into that house. And when she said that, I was like, you know what? It makes sense. So that night I went on Twitter and I started searching up people that work in Boston, in the Boston market. Um, and I reached out to a handful of people and I reached out to one Bob Sosi. And I'm not expecting to hear anything back from him. I was like, all right, you know, if he, if he answers, he answers. If not, no big deal. He responded and I was shocked. And he was like, hey, listen, I, I'd like to set aside a time, you know, to be able to talk to you and to be able to give you like advice. And, and he did. In the first phone conversation I ever had with him, 45 minutes, he told me his story. And it sounded very similar to yours where he was not happy at one point, although at one point he was calling Army games before he got the job, calling on Patriots games for 95 the sports up. But he talked about not being happy and, you know, finding finding a way to push through to persevere. And and that really resonated on with me. And that was the start of my relationship with with with, uh, with Mr. Sosi, who and I told him, listen, like I have a great deal of respect because I, w- I wasn't, I was someone who didn't eat. I wasn't even doing any type of on-air work at all. I didn't even have my own radio show to, to say that, Hey, you know, like I have experience doing on-air work and somehow that led to me you know, getting my own radio show at 91.5 FM WMFO. And then l- later on um, doing work for um, 101. 100.1 WBRS, and then as well as doing my own podcast, which came through, um, during the pandemic last year. And just recently, like maybe not even a month ago, you know, started doing a nationally syndicated uh, radio program for Pacifica Radio Network. And it just taught me so much about patience and not being afraid to put yourself out there. And that's what admired that that's what has me admiring your, your story so much because it's easy to give up and to feel discouraged but yet you found a way to keep pushing through and I and I'm learning that lesson now even in my own journey as I as I grow through this industry as well it's powerful it's powerful when you learn that um that no is okay. You just got to keep plugging away every single day at it. And I think that this is a good lesson for a lot of people in life that not to be broadcasting a job that you love, uh, something in life that you want to earn or a goal that you set out for yourself, something that you want to save money for, yeah. or something in life that you just want to change about your existing life. It's always possible. You just have to have a belief. And that's hard sometimes when you keep getting you know, the, the wrong answer back to you that you think is the wrong answer. Mm. And it, it takes being flexible. And like your story is a really good example of that, of, of the house. And there's multiple ways to enter a house. It could be the side door. It could be the garage door. It could be the back door. It could be the side window. It could be the top window. It could be the back window. Mm -hmm. There's just different ways to be able to accomplish the same thing. And I oftentimes tell young broadcasters, don't be so adamant about where you fit in the industry. Mm. Just find out where you fit. Be very open. When I went to school, 
I worked for the student newspaper to see if maybe writing was what I wanted to do. I worked in student radio. I did television classes. I did internships at TV stations. Oh. And I worked in PR as well. And I said, I've got to be open to everything and just see where I fit. And sports talk was not what I necessarily set out to do, mm. but radio was something that I was really passionate about. But I, I sent out demo reels in every part of the industry. So being flexible is really important. Being open-minded is really important. And the determination and the work ethic is vital. You just, you can't give up because you get a few no's. You have to keep going because this industry specifically is so competitive that you must train yourself very early that there will be no's. People will get jobs over you. People will be promoted over you. You will not get the, the job that you always want. And you've got to make the best out of that job. And when they launched CBS Sports Radio and I was uh, working at 98.5 The Sports Sub, they offered me the overnight show. I said yes before I knew it was the overnight show. I just said, wherever you got a slot for me on sport, CBS Sports Radio, I'm in. I wanted to get back to New York to be close to my family. That's where I was originally from. That's where the studios were based out of. I also wanted a national platform and I wanted to work for a big network. And so it checked all those boxes. I said, it doesn't matter where you put me. I'll make the best out of it. I, there's nothing that is going to be beneath me. And they said, well, how about overnights? And I said, okay, let's do that. <laughs> that means I'm working 2 a.m. 2 to 6 a.m. And I'm wow. sleeping during the day and uh, my life's going to be turned upside down, but I'm in. And I just knew that as long as I got in the door, I could prove myself through work ethic and through determination and through being a good teammate, you know, being a good employee. So those are all powerful lessons to remember in everything in life. A lot of people go through depression, isolation, especially during pandemic, and they don't see a way out. And the way out is always to take steps. Just keep walking. You Absolutely. Should. And it just feels like it might never end. But one of my favorite sayings is the only way out is through. The only way you get out of stuff is to keep walking through it. Walk through it every single day and don't stop walking. And eventually you find your way out of the forest. Absolutely. And, and I want to put this out there because last summer I was actually last summer and early last fall, I was interviewed for two full-time positions at two different radio stations. First one was for 97 when the ticket in Detroit. The other one was for 95.7 the game in San Francisco. Full-time benefits. I'm like, this is incredible. I'm even being considered. Like, wow. Okay. Didn't get the job. Disappointed. Yeah, but I said, you know what? Back to the drawing board. Keep working at it. Keep keep doing your shows. Like keep getting more and more comfortable. Like like on air and even and even doing this right now, like where like I feel no type of nervousness or angst at all. It's just relaxed. Like just it's like a conversation like we're having, like except virtually like over, over a table or a glass of like red wine or whatever. I don't know if you drink or anything like that, but 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 you get what I'm oh, saying. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say a lot, like explain what does a lot mean? <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big beer guy, so ah, I love okay. all the micro brews. I love uh, all these like cideries and distilleries and small batch everything. I love that, but mm. you know, I mean, I, there's just nothing better than a beer at the end of the day. I just absolutely love. You're not a lying. You're at dinner, a beer during a game. You know, wh whatever game I'm at, it's mandatory. I got to have a cold beer in my hand. So 
Uh, that's what I mean. It's it's. <laughs> it might have come off a little wrong. I just. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love your honesty, like on um, DA. Honest, like seriously, like it's it's the best thing about this, and and like like for me, like I enjoy like one of the things I miss about like during this pandemic, one of the things that I absolutely miss the most going to sporting events, and you know that specific distinct smell of beer and cooked hot dogs and, and just food in the arena or or yes. ballpark like there's just nothing like it it's just something about the smell of beer it's like <laughs> i smell it oh my gosh what, what is that you got over there buddy like like i i miss that and and i the one question i'll ask you is what is one thing that you absolutely miss the most about being able to go to a, an arena or a ballpark or a stadium during um during this pandemic that wish that we have not been able to depending on where you live yeah you know when you do what we do and you talk about sports all the time i really do think you need that tactile experience of going there you have to feel what the crowd feels you have to feel the action the athletes the sounds i think it's such an amazing experience just from all your senses you know i have I have family members that aren't necessarily huge sports fans. Like my mom's not a huge sports fan, but she loves going to games with me. I always take her to games because no matter what, there's an energy there. It's a different experience. It's like going to a concert. So I really miss that. And what I've realized is over this year without being able to attend games, watching and covering games or talking about games just virtually on a TV screen, two dimensional, it's not, it's not as it's not as insightful. It, it, you just don't have the same attachment. And it's not like I'm at sure. every NBA finals game, mm-hmm. but I would go to NBA games to feel what a basketball game feels like and to watch LeBron or to watch Kawhi or to watch Steph Curry. And you have to do that. You just have to, because if everything that you ever see is only virtually yeah. there's something that you're still missing, you know, I'm a huge New York Mets fan. I have a, a partial season ticket package. Yankee fan. And, one of the things that I, I really miss, the, maybe the thing that I miss the most in pandemic is going out to a ball game, having a beer, having a hot dog and sitting down in on a summer night and just feeling what that yes. feels like. And I can't wait till we get back to it because you can replicate a lot of other things in life. Like we're going to grocery stores, you can go to a mall, you can go to a restaurant and it's socially distanced. You can go take a walk in the park. You know, you can do all these things virtually like you and I are doing shows virtually over Zoom. What you cannot replicate is going to a sporting event. You can't replicate going to a concert. You can listen to the radio all day long or Spotify or Apple Music. It does not replicate hearing that music in person. So I desperately miss that. And uh, I'm getting real itchy now. It's been almost a year. Haven't been to a game in a year. And it's it's starting starting to affect me. Same, same here. And it, it just hit me now where it's like, yeah, next month we, we'll make it exactly a full year, which is unbelievable considering like just it just how how slow it just felt like 2020 was just kind of like just drifting by. And now that we're in 2021, it's like, OK, now that thankfully the vaccine is here and there's really growing optimism that perhaps by this by this summer, mid 2021, that's June, July that we could go get at least as close to as norm, as much as normalcy as possible. And I only have a couple more questions left to ask though, to wrap before I wrap things up. The first one I'll ask you is this, there's so much that has been made about the future of sports radio 
in a direction that it's going where seemingly everything is becoming more digitalized on demand and so forth. Do you see that an industry like podcasting would one day overtake sports radio as, as people become more and more fixated on being able to just listen to content and shows on demand than actually listening live? Yeah, I think that the need for demand and on demand or the want and the thirst and the appetite is going to continue, especially as people are more and more indoctrinated into how podcasts work. There's an older generation that doesn't listen to podcasts because they don't quite understand how you to access it, search it, download it, listen to it. So as we grow as a society around it, there's going to be more and more demand. But I do think there's always going to be a need for instant live reaction. You know, sometimes my favorite podcasts come out twice a week. I don't want to wait three days to hear what they want to say about what just happened. I want now, what's the reaction right now? Yeah. So I do think that that's a real value to what, say, we do on my show every day. I'm the morning show on CBS Sports Radio. You know, if a sporting event happens at night, you wake up in the morning and you hear what my thoughts are on that. I think there's a real value there that'll never get old, that'll never be phased out. But I do think that the encroachment of podcasts into the radio industry is only going to continue to happen. Because honestly, you know, why, if there's somebody specifically you want to hear and there is something that they're talking about or something that you want to hear talked about, why wouldn't you search it out every single day? Of course, why wouldn't you? Mm. So I think in a lot of ways, my show or people that do shows like ours, our shows are the podcast. So I have a lot of people that just listen to my show when they want to listen to it. They listen to it later in the day if they're not awake. For my West Coast listeners, they listen to it later on the day at work. You know, So I think that kind of also bridges both both parts of this, where you do a live radio show for the people that want to hear you right away, but you also have it available in podcasts that you can listen to it when you want to. And the next question I want to ask you is something that I've become quite accustomed to doing over the last couple of years. I'm a big fan of what Barrett Sports Media, BSM, has been doing over the last uh, few years now, ranking the best national sports talk host in the industry, best major market, mid-market radio shows, morning, midday, afternoon, et cetera, et cetera. The other day I read something in, in which that you talked about in, in an article by Barrett Sports Media discussing who is the best national radios. And you mentioned Jim Rome. For, no, for those that don't know, Jim Rome is an absolute legend and icon in this industry. And you talk about a guy who, I and I watch him almost every day, like after I would listen to your show, and and like there's a certain style, a certain cadence that he has in which he delivers his points and the way he does interviews. So I'll ask you, like, why did you pick Jim Rome, and what influenced you in terms of? how Jim Rome does a show and what goes into becoming a top tier national sports talk host. Well, I, I chose Jim Rome to, to write about because they asked me who I thought was the best. And I really believe he's the best because I respect a couple of things. Number one, he created a lot of what the industry is now. 
he was the original hot take guy, but not hot take that was mm. off the wall. It was really strong opinions. Every segment that he had was a really strong opinion. It wasn't kind of meandering around a topic, BSing, wasting time, which a lot of sports talk has been for a long time. It was hot, hot opinion coming in hot right now. That's the essence of what successful sports talk radio is. Embrace debate, that whole thing. You know, he kind of created that. Also, he was the first one that used listeners on a national level as content. They were characters in the show. Mm. And I think that was also well ahead of its time. Also, you knew from Jim, and you still do, mm. every big topic of the day, he's hitting like a machine gun. Boom, 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 boom. It's built like First Take is. His show, his radio show for 25 years is built like a television debate show or what everything is right now. Hot topic, let's go, boom. Coming up after the break, this happened to LeBron, boom. After the break, let's talk about Brady versus Mahomes, boom. He's been, now he's been doing this also for 25 years. The longevity part of this, if you listen to his radio show in 1996 and you listen to it today, there's not much of a difference. That's how disciplined he is. And that's what I really respect. You can attest to this. You wake up every single day as a human being, you try to flip on the microphone and absolutely be at your best for those three hours or four hours or five hours, wherever long that you do it. But inevitably, there are some bad days, there are some good days, you're tired some days, you're excited some days, you have great takes one day, you have bad takes the next day, your interview goes really well one day, it kind of flops the next day. There's ups and downs because we're human. Jim is so consistent. You never know if he's had a good day, a bad day. You never know if the interview was good or bad. You never know. He never stumbles over his words. You have to be so focused to never mess up, to never have a verbal crutch, to never say like or you know. It's so hard to do this well. It's virtually impossible to do every segment really well for 25 years. And that's what he's done. So mm -hmm. that consistency, I mean, pick, take your, your favorite guys. You can take Cowherd or Levitard or Patrick or the, the, the titans of the national radio industry. All of those guys have bad segments. All of those guys stammer or say, you know, or like or roundabout question or have something that falls flat. Jim doesn't. I mean, it's, it's absolutely insane that he doesn't, mm -hmm. but he doesn't. And that, to me, that consistency is what I, I believe is makes him the greatest. And the, the last question I'll ask you is this. When you think about what goes into a radio show, take us into the mind of, of, of the host. And for those that, that aren't in the industry that don't understand the work that goes into preparing for a show, what does your preparation look like and how do you prepare for a national uh, show on an everyday basis, given that you're on Monday through Friday? Well, just piggybacking off of what Jim does, I make every segment count. I believe that every segment needs to have a purpose, needs to have a direction, needs to have a focus. You have to be willing to be flexible off of that. If something breaks, you have to know how to go with the momentum but I make it a directive that we know what we're going to be talking about every single segment. My sports radio show is built a lot like a television show would be. You know, when you get the topic sheet, my producer sends me the stories that are the hot topics of the day at night. 
I look through them. I look for what my angles would be. I look for what the stories I want to talk about and I map it out. And you know, on a Tuesday night at 10 p.m., what we're talking about in the last segment of a Wednesday morning show. Now, again, there could be ways that we maneuver around. Okay, guys, let's move this segment to this segment because it happens in the middle of the show. Hey, this just broke. Let's talk about this. But I want a structure and I want to know every segment's going to count. And I want the listener to know that there is no segment that we take off. The Patriots, no days off. We do not take a segment off. Everything matters. (laughs) And to do that, I look at night every single day about all of the ways that I look at sports. What's an interesting way to look at them for the viewer, for the listener, for the fan? How do I view them? How do I think it's interesting for them to hear me talk about them? Mm. And therein lies the secret. It doesn't matter necessarily what you talk about. Now, you, you need to talk about the big stories because people wake up knowing that they expect you to talk about the Super Bowl on the Monday after the Super Bowl. You, you can't do four hours on you know, the, the hockey offseason. You have to talk about the Super Bowl. But what you're also looking to find is the ways that you are passionate or you are knowledgeable about the, the topic. And so break it down in terms of the things that you really want to talk about. Because if you are passionate about it, you have an interesting angle, they'll want to hear it. That's what we all tune into sports talk for, an angle, an opinion, something that really is commanding. So I'm not so concerned about making sure that we hit Paul George's big night. I'm not so, in, I'm not so invested in making sure that we absolutely have to hit that, uh, that the Texans hired David Culley. I'm interested in making sure I'm talking about the things that I really feel strongly about. And I should have a strong opinion on something about David Culley because the Texans are a disaster. And I should have an opinion on something about Paul George because of what happened in the playoffs last year and and the Clippers dynamic. But you don't have to shoehorn it in if you don't have something really important or, or interesting to contribute to the conversation. And so that's how I try to map out every single show. And that's why a national show I really love is because I get basically, what, three segments an hour for four hours, 12 segments a show. I get 12 different topics every single show that I get to jump into versus a local show where when I was doing it in Boston or Miami or Kansas city, there's like two topics a day and you hit them constantly for those three, four or five hours. In my case, I get to talk about something different, basically every segment. Damon, I'm in Delora of CBS sports radio. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you immensely so much for taking the time to talk to me on this episode and as well as share me share with me great stories. I mean, I, I can hell I can go back and just listen to it on demand like what like whenever and I appreciate you taking the time, but thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. This was really fun, man. Keep it going as we talked about. Keep plugging. Doors open, they open all the time. And what you've already accomplished in a short amount of time is really awesome. So I'm a big fan. Keep going, man. This is awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that immensely. You got it, buddy.